silence, please. <laughs> Peanut butter and jelly. Oreo cookie. Zebra cake. Wasn't white enough. Wasn't black enough. These are all the things I had to go through growing up. And if you're anything like me, you're left with confusion, doubt, self-esteem issues, not knowing which way to go, not knowing who to talk to. Do you talk to your mom? Do you talk to your dad? Do you just keep it to yourself? Will your teachers understand? Will anybody understand me if they're not mixed like me? Welcome to MIA, Mixed in America. I am your host, Damian Dorn, a.k.a. Mr. Green Bay. This is the show where you go to hear truth, facts, and experience from black to white, exposing the gray area behind the stereotypes of America. All right, all right. In this episode today, um, we're going to discuss segregation and education. Is education a form of segregation? I'm super excited to have with me um, uh, an individual that really needs no introduction inside the city of Green Bay. However, uh, for those listeners outside of Green Bay, let me tell you that this man got my attention with his work ethic. Um, I've definitely seen this man uh, market himself and advertise his brand and build his brand um, from what it looks like to be ground up from him on his own record, on his own accord, and we're going to learn a lot more about this particular individual. Um, and this is absolutely the first Caucasian guest I've had on Mixed in America. So I'm really excited to have Cujo on the show today. Um, and I apologize, I don't even think I ever got your real name. So if you want to take a moment and introduce yourself, um, I know him as Cujo, um, a wordsmith out this world. And um, we're going to start off with um, a little bit of his lyr- lyricalisms here shortly. And then uh, we'll get in. We'll get into uh, his introduction right away. So, uh, Cujo, uh, you want to introduce yourself and let the people know who you are? For sure. Thanks, Damien. Uh, I just want to say I'm happy to be here, breaking barriers. You know, first Caucasian on the podcast. Yes, sir. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. That's huge. Um, I'm a I'm a hip hop artist, a poet, and a youth educator, um, branching out into adult education as well. Actually, as of recently, I've been doing some adult writing workshops lately. Um, you know, for me, I think it's really all about exactly what you said. Education or segregation, I think, is a, is a topic that I'm really happy to be here discussing because that's something that I try to bring to light in my lyrics all the time. You know, I'm not uh, aloof to the fact that hip hop doesn't really belong to me. Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just hanging out right. in the same circle. And right. You're more than welcome. Hey, well, that's what I've felt, honestly, from, from everybody who's in hip-hop. I've always felt welcome. I've never felt like a trespasser uh, or anything, and maybe that's just because of the way I present myself, or, sure. or maybe it's just that welcoming. I don't know. But that's my experience. Uh, but still, it's not lost on me where the art form came from, you know, and what we need to pay homage to as artists within it. Uh, so talking about racial issues, talking about socioeconomic issues is a, is a huge part of my work because uh, it's what I'm passionate about, and I also feel that I have a duty uh, to do so. I originally wanted to discuss, you know, your thoughts on um, education. You know, is it was it was it part of your foundation? Was it something that you found? Um, was it something that you found you needed along the way? And where where are you at right now? I know as an educator yourself, so. Um, those are kind of where I want to lead this conversation. Mm-hmm. Before we get there, though, I do want to play this track, and I want to have you uh, spit your bars so that people can know exactly who's talking when you're talking. You know what I mean? I appreciate that. Oh, well, you know, awesome. when you gave me the the breakdown for what this episode was going to be about, uh, you know, I'm a writer by by nature, so it was just natural for me to to write it poetically. For the people, I'll just break down my, my philosophy as, as quickly as I can. So I think what I'll do is I'll play it with the instrumental. And then I think we're going to go break down the bars. And so that you can kind of, you know, give the world your perspective on what, what you meant by what you meant by. So 
Uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Cujo. All right, what's up, y'all? Like I said, if you if you're listening to this podcast on 1.5 speed, you might want to slow it down just just to get a good listen. It's the same old views, the same old trick knowledge. Spent thousands on tuition dues just to go to college. Now you're coming out confused, little to claim is knowledge. Search inside to find the truth, therefore you to acknowledge. Don't diss me for disagreeing with dissing kids that don't get degrees. There's a million ways to make it with no degree. In this land of free, we've created a culture that looks down on jobs that are necessary and celebrates becoming a debt slave by age 18. If it's your real true passion, go on and get your certificate. But your general bachelor's isn't always significant take time travel experience and be a youngin come back later for school if it's your purpose and you'll love it it isn't worth the 50 grand if you feel like it's a chore go ahead and try your hand at something that won't make you bored fulfillment and avoiding quicksand of debt is worth much more at the end of life degree or no degree ain't part of the score Mm. yeah so ladies and gentlemen Cujo let's give him a round of applause ladies and gentlemen (laughs) if we don't if you don't mind, if you don't mind, be so kind. That was um, an amazing um, set of bars. And again, I hear a lot of choice. And, you and you know, like when it's all said and done, you, 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 you touch base on both sides. Hey, I'm not necessarily anti. Um, I'm not necessarily for or pro. However, if it's for you, then do it, right? That's kind of... Definitely. And uh, I think that, you know, maybe a reflection of, of my upbringing coming from a white household, uh, it's a middle, upper middle class. Uh, for me, college was never presented as a choice, mm. not even in the slightest. Mm. Um, you know, of course, my parents surely would have been like, we still love you, even if you don't go to college. But college was never talked about for me, ever. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a topic of discussion. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't like a goal or inspiration to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, no, I don't remember a counselor in school talking about college to me. Um, so for you... Now, can I ask, uh, how old are you? I'm 45. Okay, so I'll be 35 this year. So okay. we've got just a, a little blip of a gap. And I wonder, you know, how much of our differences in experience is, is related to our different upbringings Mm -hmm. and how much is related to different societal Mm -hmm. uh, expectations in the schools and stuff like that. Cause I do feel, uh, my wife is 42, I believe. So she's kind of like just past that cusp as well, where Mm -hmm. college was definitely not as much of a, you know, written in stone path after high school. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm just speculating, but I wonder how much of that is, you know, a change in the kind of school, um, goals from a guidance counselor perspective and all of that well i i think i i think it has a i think first and foremost parenting Mm -hmm. i I think it all like as a parent now i wouldn't have said this 10 years ago as a parent now though i think a lot of it has to do with parenting um i think i've not only spoken about college to my son Speaking of my son, um, <laughs> I've not only spoken about college to my son, but I've also enrolled him in classes that were held inside of a college campus mm. to kind of break that ice. Um, because I feel like if the seed's not planted, it doesn't have potential to grow. Mm. It's just a seed, right? Like you can hold on to seeds all you want to, right? Like I know people that are seed fanatics because they feel like the world's going to end. <laughs> but you're not planting these seeds. You're just carrying them in a box. I was going to say, they have an expiration date. Just they do. <laughs> right. So plant the seed and let it let it nourish. So for you, did you grow up Did you grow up in an educated household? Uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. My father is a doctorate of education. Okay. Um, so he went to school for, I don't know, what is that, eight to ten years. thousand years, um, right. <laughs> feels like a thousand um, so that surely had something to do with it. And, uh, and, you know, there was definitely strong, uh, influence and pressure from my, my nuclear family to go to college. But honestly, it, I felt like as a, as a teenager, um, you know, in the two thousands, I think wholly in the two thousands, I was 13 and 2001 or something. Okay. Uh, growing up as a teenager in the two thousands, it felt like Hollywood movies, guidance counselors at school, 
college reps that had come to the school to talk to the kids, you know, everybody, my friends, you know, probably from being culturally conditioned in the same way. Uh, it was just a given. It was this kind of thing where um, I grew up in Florida. So again, okay. who knows what differences there are between uh, Florida and uh, did you grow up in Wisconsin? I grew up primarily Chicago, Wisconsin. Yes. Okay. So I do think the Midwest has a f- more favorable view of uh, blue collar work. Uh, in Florida, there is not a favorable view of blue collar mm. work at all. And maybe that reflects the fact that a lot of the blue collar work uh, is done by immigrants and stuff like that. And there's probably some kind of, you know, negative perception that uh, well-to-do white people in Florida have about immigrant population or who knows? I don't want to unpack all that right this moment. Right. <laughs> but I do think in Wisconsin, since moving here, there's definitely a more favorable view of, you know, self-employed contractor type work, uh, specialists, electricians, you know, carpenters, uh, and all those kinds of things. Whereas for me growing up that none of that was even presented as like a potential road forward. It was, you know, you can finish school and get a dirt job and be poor for the rest of your life, or you can go to college and make something of yourself. And obviously as a kid, that's an easy, uh, easy path to choose. I don't want to look, I don't want to be the janitor. I don't want to, I don't want to be out here mowing lawns at 90 degrees for nine months out of the year in Florida. You know, that's not what I want my life to be. Right. Um, and so for me, yeah, it did always feel like this predetermined destination that everybody was expected to go to. And I think I have some, uh, some of my feelings are shaped probably by that upbringing. Sure. Uh, I mean, me. I can't imagine being raised by a doctor first and foremost. <laughs> ah, he's pretty humble. He's a pretty good dude. I mean, <laughs> but pressure is pressure. And it's not always applied the same, but nonetheless, pressure. Sure. So I'm sure there was some pressure for you as a young adult, you know, growing into your man at 13, 14, to where it was like, okay, I, let me let me do this because of the expectation or this um, the uh, stature that was set above me uh, for me by my parents. Because again, I think it stems back to parental units. Again, cultural differences, right? Now I'm mixed, but culturally, I'm black. Like I resonated black from early childhood. Um, and it was primarily because I was accepted by my black folks. But I felt like I, I experienced racism from my family unit first. My mom's side of the family, sitting us at different tables. The Christmas gifts were different. Yeah. The, the, the vernacular, the, the tone that they used with us was different. When we arrived to grandma and grandpa's house, it wasn't the same um, – Celebration as when other cousins arrived to grandma and grandpa's house, and I yeah. no, started noticing that in my older years. It's crazy how much I've heard that story from people who, you know, either come from mixed families or adopt children of different race or mm-hmm. things like that. You know, even uh, my cousin, um, her and her husband adopted two, um, I'm not 100% sure, Puerto Rican, Mexican, some type of Latinx um, children, and you know, the kids are like toddlers, you know, two and four years old or something. And they bring them up North Wisconsin to meet one side of the family. And they're just greeted with incredible hostility. And I'm like, this is adopted children into the family, you know, like that's right. That's for good. Right. And this isn't uh, even foster, which not that I could excuse it if they were, but I'm just saying it's not even like a temporary situation. Like this is being, put forth of as these are my children and they're being met with this distaste and disrespect that would never ever be shown to to blood children of the same race and it's just it's crazy to me that that type of thinking even still exists and it's, it does it's good for me to be reminded of that from time to time because i my circle is largely really good people mm-hmm. on purpose <laughs> check your circle people that's a key <laughs> but right. it's important to remember that there's still a lot of nastiness out there uh, in, in people's hearts and minds. You know, it's crazy. I agree. It is, it is absolutely amazing. Um, the kids don't know what they don't know, but they do know how they feel. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't necessarily explain my feelings as a kid, but I definitely felt like I didn't belong anywhere, nor wanted. Um, my mom, group homes, 
um, treatment centers. You know, all that's my that's what my childhood was riddled with. From my dad left at eight, so from eight to twelve, it was bickering back and forth with my mom, um, ruining. I ruined her life. She had no freedom. Blah blah blah. Twelve years old, moved to Green Bay, and the system took me in. So I really feel like I went from a preschool to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Like I really feel like I rode that bus, which brings us to our topic of conversation: education segregation and do we use education as a tool to segregate and I kind of feel like I grew up in a private Catholic school my dad for whatever intents and purposes had money like I said he he had a good daytime job he had some sense about himself he taught me manners he taught me a lot of uh, real man characteristics he said it's okay to cry um, he said, always respect a woman because she can be your best friend or your worst enemy. You know, these are things that he told me from three, four, five years old before he left at eight, taught me how to play chess. You know, so he he, he instilled some good seeds into me. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I think about going from a private Catholic school to third grade public school, it was culture shock. It was absolutely night and day difference for, for me. Um, to where you went from being um, honored for your intellect and raising your hand and answering questions to now you're laugh now you're a laughing stock because now you're trying to show out now you're yeah you know you're, oh you oh you're too smart you know so I I do feel like schools kind of segregate you know I feel like those tests those placement tests those acuplacer tests like they want to see where you score at so they can kind of urge your parents to move you in a different direction as far as education is concerned do you have you experienced anything like that or seen anything like that in your upbringing you know it's funny I mean um, I was in public school my whole life but you know uh, the area that I lived in is pretty middle class well to do we you know, I never experienced well to do e. You know, I mean, I knew somebody in middle school that that sold we, but I knew like a guy, a not, guy, right? Not like everybody. Right, right. <laughs> I know there's some schools out there where that's the case. Mm, that's just what they do. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting that you mentioned third grade because uh, my daughter's in while well, she's going into fourth grade. Okay. Now she just was in third grade this past year, and it's it's funny because I've noticed this shift. As of third grade, and maybe, you know, it might be different for different kids. Obviously, kids mature at a different rate and all of that. But uh, I think what you what you witness coming from private school to public school is also partially prevalent even in the public school sector. You know, young kids don't know to beat each other down. Right. You know, young kids don't know to drag each other back into the barrel as somebody's trying to climb out. Right. That's like a learned thing. That's not a that's not an innate thing. Um, and by the time they get to be eight years old, you know, for me, my first memories that I can even call upon are from when I was like six, Okay, you know, I got nothing before that. And I think around that age range, seven to nine years old, you really start developing the sense of not just individual self, but self as part of something bigger, self as part Mm -hmm. of the family, part of the group, part of the class, Mm -hmm. part of the, whatever it is. Um, and I wonder how much of that is you know, like you said, coming from private to public or even just maturing to that age where kids start to get worn down by the cultural conditioning mm-hmm. that basically says, you know, this is how you at, are. Look at the dork over there. Look at mm-hmm. the nerd over there. You know, don't be like that guy, right. which I can't imagine how they've even managed to craft that because everybody knows that the dorks and the nerds are the ones who end up as millionaires <laughs> later on in life. You yeah, know? they say, but they say the, um, what do they say? The A students end up working for the C students. <laughs> I've heard that as well. That, that, that's probably also got some truth to it. But, uh, um, you know, my, my experience was definitely more uh, supportive, I think. Sure. You know, I was always a smart kid. Um, I had two older brothers, five and eight years older than me that, you know, they were too much older than me to beat up on me too much. Mm -hmm. You know, they were too much much bigger, but they still, you know, they still ribbed me and jabbed me all the time. That little brother pressure. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think is something that kind of hardened me to, to ridicule. Sure. You know, like my peers weren't really touching me that much because 
I was getting picked on by much bigger, right. <laughs> much bigger dudes than them. And I was like, ah, trust me. I'm afraid of my brother. I'm not afraid. Of you. Right. <laughs> yeah. I can get I've that. been, I've been called way worse. Okay. I'm, I'm the big, I'm the big brother in the family. And, um, I think my little brother, my youngest brother is by far doing better than his two older brothers. Um, to his test, Tomoni, not, I'm not taking any credit, mm-hmm. but I think that happens. I think, you know, as a little, as a youngest, you're like very observant, you acknowledge things. Um, so I think that, you know, that's another way that education can benefit other than uh, institutional mm-hmm. style education. It's like we learn from each other, right? So talking about the crabs in the bucket uh, analogy, I, I think that is a learned behavior, like I do, I, I think, <clears throat> I think at some point, as a, as a youngster, you you observe your surroundings, and you realize that you don't want to be a crab in a bucket, so you become a monkey in a barrel, <laughs> right? Like, like I I was always the guy who had my hand on the edge, grabbing out for other people to pull them up to get over or beyond whatever level of existence they were in. Mm, I like that analogy. So I countered my crabs in a bucket analogy with monkeys in a barrel. And which one do you want to be? Well, I wanted to be the one that helped other people be successful. Little did I know in my education, self-education, that in order to get what you want in life, you should help other people get what they want to truly get what you want. And I didn't know that as a young age. I didn't, that wasn't taught to me, but it was in me. And I think that's the spirit of God, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll digress from that because I don't want my listeners to be like, oh my God, he's going to go to church on us. <laughs> so let's, let's go back to upbringing. Can I, can I jump in on yeah, one please. second though, just to kind of bring it back into school, something that I was thinking about. Um, one thing that I, I honestly don't remember whether or not we had when I was a kid, but I know that Wisconsin has had it for a long time is school choice. Mm. Um, and I, this is something that I really grapple with as a parent because on the one hand, I would like the opportunity to choose what school my child goes to. Absolutely. Uh, as you reason. Um, you know, right now my son goes to Preble and we live on the west side and there ain't no bus that will take him. So we got to take him ourselves every day. Every day. And, uh, and I realize that's a privilege that I have that not everyone can afford. But for us, it was the right choice uh, for my son. We used to live on the east side. He has friends that he came up with, and, and we really like move. we really like that core group of friends. There's mm-hmm. four of them that like we just love them, which is rare for boys, especially. True. <laughs> and so for us, it was like this is important to to keep them together and to send them to that high school. But I also see the other side of that argument, where school choice inevitably leads to segregation. Uh, because if you have the privilege to choose, well, not, choose, not everyone does. And so the people who do have the privilege to choose, choose, and the people who don't stay, and then you end up with the segregation uh, of schools that's just going to naturally happen um, out of socioeconomic stratification that just mm-hmm. takes place. Um, so I, I really struggle with a lot of these issues. You know, in my, in my rap, I don't want everybody to think like, oh, he's anti-college, anti-education or any of this, uh, because I went to college. Um, I did too, recently. I know many people who went to college and it was a great experience and it was very important for them. And I know just as many people who went to college and it was a complete utter waste of time and an enormous debt on their back (laughs) that they still carry and probably will for another decade. Yes, or Um, until they die. So, you know, I have nuanced opinions about this and I I think that's one thing that as a people we need to really embrace a little more is the discussion and the realization that most people are trying to do the best that they can with the tools that they have and – just because I made the choice to move my kids uh, to a different school than they were zoned for doesn't necessarily mean that uh, I'm pro-segregation. It more is a self-preserva- self-preservation tactic well, that I initiated. And, and I'm uh, not, whether I feel good or bad about it, I don't know. Well, I'm not, I'm not necessarily opposed to self-preservation. And, and, and I feel like you should be pro-self. Whatever your self is, if it's white, black, Native, Asian, whatever yourself is, you should be pro that. I believe when you become anti something else mm-hmm. is when the pro is no longer a pro. 
So I have this I have this metaphor in one of my songs. Can I like break it down for Absolutely, you real quick? Please. So uh, the song is called "Food Is Medicine," and the song begins with a very long, elaborate metaphor, uh, and it's it goes like this: the seeds of ignorance began sprouting long ago enough now that their thick wooded trees cast in shade on reality, creating a forest of misunderstanding. So here we are standing under a canopy of complacency, but every fallen leaf lets a little light shine through. Hmm. All right. So we have the seed. And for me, that is, you know, racist ideas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically what this country was founded on and mm-hmm. what, it, what it largely proliferated up until the 1960s or even more recent. Sure. We have the seeds that were planted long ago now that have grown up into trees. These trees are the institutions, the uh, justice system, the school system, which mm-hmm. we're talking about today, you know, uh, the legal system, that said justice, but I kind of meant police and criminal justice. Well, there's a difference. Uh, yes. So these institutions have created the forest. The forest is where we are in the present, mm-hmm. this forest of misunderstanding, because we didn't even plant those seeds. Right. We don't know a lot. Those seeds were planted generations ago. Right. We don't even, we didn't even start this, but here we are today caught in this forest of thick, old trees, these institutions. Mm -hmm. The canopy represents basically the shade, right? Shade makes things difficult to focus. It's hard Mm -hmm. to, it's hard to see the clear edges of Mm -hmm. things when you're deep in the woods. Uh, This shade makes it hard for people who, particularly white people, because that's the perspective I'm speaking from, to see clearly in the forest Mm -hmm. that we've created, Mm. right? And so we see blurred edges. We see shadows moving. We are afraid of what's happening in the forest because we don't have a clear sunshiny vision of it uh, from our own cultural fault but still this is where we are today i love that the leaves that fall represent things getting knocked down right like uh integration of schools even though that's kind of a long road and we're still talking about it today it was still a step in the right direction right police being forced to wear body cameras you know so that there's more transparency in uh, in policing you would have to the police community. the police <laughs> Who would have you know that? these are these are leaves that fall out of the canopy and they allow cracks for the light oh, to shine light. through. And that light is the awareness. Mm. That light is what gives clarity to the forest floor that gives us the ability to see things the way that they really are instead of the way that we project them being. I think all of us are caught in the same thing, but specifically culturally, we built the institutions uh, uh, that, that created the situations that muddy the water so that we live in fear of each other so that we have incorrect uh, opinions of each other and we have misunderstanding. But, you know, I didn't need the school to teach me to figure out that Christopher Columbus wasn't a great guy and that we stole the land from the, from the Native Americans, you know. Uh, I didn't even, I didn't even, <laughs> in, in, in my mind, I didn't even, it just didn't compute mm-hmm. at that early age. Like, I was still worried about what I was going to eat for dinner. Sure. Well, I never thought about it as a young person either. But I do think it's, it's uh, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of controversy going on about critical race theory and all that. And honestly, I don't know enough about what even critical race theory uh, is as far as what's being taught to, to share any opinion on that. But I think it's an enormous benefit to our children to learn the truth than to be fed propaganda. I agree. Propaganda does not educate in any sense of the word, it doesn't help you grow as a person. And it doesn't even do what it's supposed to do, which is to create a stronger country. Propaganda doesn't create a stronger country anymore. Nope. Maybe in the eighties it did. Maybe during the cold war it did. Maybe back in history it did because you couldn't know any better. But now propaganda just makes you look dumb. Right. Like all of, you know, I've gotten like a thousand text messages on my phone from the primary elections coming oh up. My Jesus. <laughs> You know, and they're all just so incredibly disconnected from anything that's real at all. I agree. Like if if one of them just texts me like some real shit, like, hey, this is my platform. I 
I'm going to try to pass this, this, and this because that's realistic and I'm going to have to work across the aisle in order to get it done. I would love to do these radical changes, but more realistically, here's the things that we can accomplish. I would just vote for them immediately. I don't even care if they were on one side or the other, what party they were for. I'd be like, hey, this person's telling me the truth. You know, which is which is which is literally all all we want, right? Nobody wants to be lied to, <laughs> stolen yeah. from, or cheated. If it's intentional or not, the truth is that it is happening, and so we have to acknowledge that it's happening before we can Period. do anything absolutely about it. And that's the gray area that we talk about, right? Like just acknowledging the truth, just acknowledging the fact, just acknowledging that it exists. Yeah. Now what? For me, acting like racism isn't a thing, which is what I attempted to do in my early life it didn't make sense to me but a lot of people don't think that way a lot of people literally I've literally seen people disregard somebody because of the color of their skin and that blows my mind to this day even that that's a problem like that, that, that is still an existent problem that we have here in America that a person's color of their skin will dictate how they're being treated by a job, a bank a officer, a judge, or somebody in somehow, some way, in a authoritative manner or figure over a person's acceptance or freedom or financial stability or mm. loan or education. I think that's a problem that we need to really discuss. You know, I think that, I think that's the reason why I'm here. You know, like the reason why it makes it America's, you know, one wanting to rip that Band-Aid off. It's a, yeah, I mean, that's a big problem for sure. And and to me, you know, um, what you said, you know, people disregarding someone or not giving them opportunity because of the color of their skin. You know, I think a lot of the time, if you ask that person later, especially a while later down the road, they'd be like, oh, of course not. That's not why. There's this reason, this reason, this reason. But it's not because they're lying to you or they're trying to pretend like they aren't racist. I think it's because racial conditioning is so deep that we don't even realize that we are executing racism in the moment. And I'm saying we as in probably white people, but certainly myself. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that's very difficult to break down and get out of. Uh, and this is something that, um, numerous people of color have helped me to understand because, you know, I like to think that I was woke before being woke was cool. <laughs> before it was a movement. But, you know, I always kind of was like, no, of course I'm not racist, you know. Mm-hmm. But when we really break down the way that our mind works, it's not about I think black people are inferior, like the Confederate South, perhaps. Uh, that's not the kind of racism that we're dealing with on the, on the large part. I still know a few people who are hopefully in the twilight of their lives that are uh, about to leave the earth, uh, that hold those beliefs. Right. But be almost over by now. (laughs) I would like to think so, but there, there are some young people who still do too, but by and large, I think most people, you know, don't have that inferiority feeling. It's that they have predisposed uh, attitudes and beliefs about people that are generalized, you mm. know, and it's not, they, they don't only have those beliefs based on the color of skin. There are other things that you can say if you are, uh, you know, convicted felon, you will have this wheelbarrow of baggage that someone attaches to you in their brain before they ever know anything about you because they know you're a felon. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good example, they I will, think, because... They know you as a felon before they know anything else. And I like to use that example because it's way more universal. Most of us feel uncomfortable with people who have broken the law willingly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I know many people who've been to jail or prison have become rehabilitated, you know, they were young when they did it. They're older now. They can see in retrospect that wasn't a great idea. Whatever the 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 penance actually helped to sharpen their their drive and and their focus on life and whatever. Uh, and these 
people that I'm talking about are some of the, like the most motivating, inspirational, and amazing people that I've met because they've come out of this fire with all of these, you know, uh, presumptions that everyone has about them. And so they're starting 12 steps lower than you or me. Mm. Uh, and they have to kind of climb that staircase to get above all of those presuppositions and then get on a level playing field. But I think we do this to people of color all the time. And maybe it's not as much, maybe it's not as heavy as we do to people who are convicted felons. Uh, but we, whether we like it or not, we have this kind of long conditioning and this image that's been portrayed. So yeah, just to kind of unpack that a little bit and, and really clarify what I'm saying is I think probably all of us, uh, but speaking from my perspective, I'm, I'm only going to speak for, for white people because that's the only group of white cis males, we'll say. How about that? That's the only group of people I'm, I'm uh, authorized to speak about. Right. But I think all of us have lots of work to do internally um, to dissect the beliefs that we have, to question the almost subconscious reactions that we have to people of different types um, and start to examine where those came from, you know, why we have them and whether or not they're justified media. Well, that's certainly a big part of it. News. <laughs> yeah. Hollywood. Right. Well, um, school, know, school, <laughs> you know, parenting, um, you know, there's well, lots of ways that, that conditioning comes in. <clears throat> you talk about how deeply embedded the system has portrayed racism, the idea of racism. It's everywhere. There was a time where you didn't see anybody of color in advertisements for Colgate, Listerine, um, Midas. You Which know, is ludicrous. Because the contrast of the bright white teeth on the dark skin is everything. Like, come on. Like Denzel Washington. <laughs> hello. So, you know, you, I think about these things. You know, I think about growing up. Did I see? I think Michael Jackson may have broke the ice on black folks in commercials. You hmm. know, now that I'm thinking about it. Right? Um, because I don't think there was a Richard Pryor commercial when Richard Pryor was in his 70s. In in the seventies, I'm saying not in <laughs> yeah. his seventies, but yeah, in yeah. the seventies, Richard Pryor was a big deal. Interesting, but I don't think he was in commercials. I wasn't um, alive then, so O.J. Only... Simpson, I think, made it into Hollywood early in the early eighties, broke some barriers, and and then it started flooding Eddie Murphy, and then then it started flooding from there. This is just my perspective growing mm -hmm. up with really the media is to teach me about my black history because my mom didn't teach me about black history because she's white and my dad left at eight and the whole black history of my dad's side of the family escaped me too at that time. So, you know, I think you said something really important just now and acknowledging that the media was your teacher. Yeah. I think that's part of how we can start to kind of unpack this conditioning is realizing that every opportunity that presents itself in life, every source of entertainment, every adventure that you go upon is a teacher. Yeah. Right. Every person that you interact with is a teacher. Your yeah. kids are teachers to you. Your <sighs> grandparents are teachers to you. The mm -hmm. news and media that you consume are teachers to you. The entertainment that you consume are teachers to you, whether or not you acknowledge this is up to you, but if you don't acknowledge it, then you become a vessel right. that gets filled with, things that maybe aren't of your intention. If you do seek out media entertainment relationships with the mindset that these are teachers uh, and, and really teachers are mirrors, mm. right? The best teachers are mirrors. They allow you to see yourself mm. because the whole point of education is to grow. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we, when we acknowledge that these interactions that we're having with media that with entertainment, when we, when we acknowledge that these are teachable moments, that this is a classroom, it changes the way that we start taking things in. Right. And it changes the way that we process that information, and it doesn't just sort of spill in in an empty vessel. But rather, we come in, analyze it, 
get rid of some, keep some, and move forward. Beautifully said. You know, we talk about, we're going to talk about higher education. What does higher education teach you? I'm going to be honest. Going to college at 40 years old, it did, it did wonders for me as a man, but didn't teach me anything about what I was studying. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I learned more about myself in this college run than I did about the education that I like that I sought. Like intro to ethics, intro to diversity, intro to psychology, college 101, those four classes alone just blew my mind, right? I really learned about myself as a man, as a person, as a as a being that not necessarily my brain is different than anybody else's. I have the same functionalities as everybody else. I have the same capacities as everybody else unless I'm removing those capacities with ulterior motives or um, implications of things that I shouldn't like drugs or alcohol or abuse or something of that nature that limits my ability to learn and function. And I I guess until then, I, I felt like I was different, man. I really did. I really felt like my existence and upbringing in institutions and stuff like that, being raised the way I was raised, made me different. But it wasn't until college that I realized, like, wow, we're all in the same boat, really. Like, we really are all in this pot of learning, seriously, and teaching, whether we whether we realize it or not. So um, higher learning for you may have, may have been an expectation in, as far as a person – uh, as far as you being up, being raised by an educator, do you do you regret it? Do you regret seeking high, higher education? Have you utilized higher educate your higher education that you received? Out of, what, what was the degree in? Yeah, so uh, my degree is in applied physiology and kinesiology, which is pretty much exercise science. Okay, so exercise science. Mm-hmm. So you went down that route obviously because you had a goal. Yeah, so um, I think this is a really interesting kind of dichotomy between us because, uh, you know, in my in my opening rap, I talked a little bit about, you know, maybe putting college off until you're grown mm. and understand the value of that education and decide whether or not it's actually something that is, is going to be beneficial uh, for you. For me, I don't regret going to university by any means, um, but in part that's because I had incredible support uh, behind me in order to do so, mm-hmm. you know? So just to kind of break things down, um, the Florida lottery was developing this program whereby they would fund scholarships for all students who met X criteria. There wasn't a limit. There wasn't a cap on the number of people that they would give the scholarships out to. There wasn't a, application process all it was was if you hit these metrics if you get this gpa and this test score and you do this much community service and something else uh they will pay for either 75 or 100 percent of your tuition depending on your scores basically wow um which was crazy sounds like an awesome program i never heard of nothing like that they may be over overshot a tiny bit and i'll discuss that (laughs) in a minute but because they didn't cap it it was just open for anyone who met this met, met these metrics. All of a sudden, those metrics became, you know, the focus. Sure. As opposed to maybe other educational pursuits. But so, very fortunately, I got 100% scholarship tuition um, through the Florida Lottery because I had whatever GPA and test score um, criteria. Now, over the years that I was in school, the four and a half uh, years that I took to do my bachelor's every year I was getting less and less money because the program was running out <laughs> ah. basically. But at the beginning, anyways, they promised hundred uh, percent tuition, $250 for books. Um, and, and maybe that was it, but still that's, that's great. Substantial and yes. enormous. Um, so that helped subsidize my costs of college a great degree. And then I had parents, that had the financial means in order to support me um, while I went to college, which again is why I don't regret it. I was in a position to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, I should have taken more advantage of it than I did (laughs) probably, but 
for me, I don't have a lot of baggage that I have to carry with that. Now, I still have some uh, student debt because it took me one additional semester to complete. So after four years, the scholarship program was no longer continuing uh, to offer me any any support. Uh, and I did have to take a small student loan to get through my final semester, basically, which is okay. But 10 years later, I'm still paying on it. That's and that's And that's a tiny fraction of some of the people I know, you know, I have a right. friend who was out of state tuition back then. And that was just crazy. I can't even believe the the price for out of state tuition, but I'll, I'll just stick to in-state cause that's what I know. So for me, it was a great experience. It was worthwhile and it didn't saddle me with ridiculous amount of debt. Sure. Now that said, I really enjoyed the challenge that college provided because uh, if I'm being honest, and I know this isn't everyone's experience, but high school was not challenging for me. High school was, uh, I, I will say, I got, I think I got a 4.2 GPA. I wasn't valedictorian, but I was top 10 or something. Uh, and I did not try. <laughs> Are you serious? So you're a savant. And, you know, I think that's, again, very privileged with the upbringing that I had and the space that I had to grow in. And so maybe I was just a little ahead because of those, those legs up that I had. But for me personally, high school was not mentally stimulating in the slightest, mm. you know? And so we fucked around a lot, but, <laughs> you, got it, but you still got your work done. Yes. But again, you know, I'm sure I turned in some assignments late that I was granted grace on because I was a good student. And if I had been a bad student, they would have been like, no, you can take the zero, you know, all kinds of stuff happens like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but for me, I really enjoyed the mental stimulation that college courses, you know, met me with. I went from, you know, high school where I felt like you're treated as a kid, maybe rightfully so, but mm-hmm. maybe not, uh, to the second I stepped on college campus, my professors expected adult behavior and adult results out of me. Um, I failed my chemistry class. Uh, maybe I dropped it before I failed it. Uh, as, so as not to, tarnish my GPA. Right. But uh, I took chemistry. I went to school hoping to pursue microbiology. Uh, God knows why in retrospect, but I think I wanted to do some kind of research. Uh, failed chemistry so horribly that I gave that up immediately and changed my major. Having no idea what I should change my major to, uh, I decided I should learn about the body because in 13 years of school, nobody has taught me hardly anything about the vessel that I inhabit uh, and, and the, the thing that I'm stuck in, that my brain is stuck in. Uh, you know, they, fo- they focus a lot on the brain and not so much on uh, educating you on how your body works and mm-hmm. how to properly take care of it and how to, you know, go the distance. <laughs> so yeah, to speak. I was never taught that the brain and mind were two separate entities. Mm-hmm. Now, so for me, I don't regret it, but I know many people who regret it, who Hmm. went through four years of undergraduate just to basically get an entry-level job uh, at a corporation with 500 other people, make no more money than they would have made had they not gotten the degree, and now have $50,000 worth of debt. That's the American dream, though. Yeah. And now, things I wish that we would have learned is how to take care of your body. Things I wish we would have learned in high school, I should say. Uh, And I I kind of try to, I've tried to push for this in different ways and I don't really know the right avenues. Uh, So educators and uh, school board people, if you're listening, what I think is really important that we learned about in high school is how to take care of our bodies, Mm -hmm. how to take care of our mental health Mm -hmm. and how to take care of our finances. Mm. We learn so little (laughs) about finance. Uh, Oh, even no. even in college, unless you <clears throat> unless you major in economics or finance, you don't learn very much about it. You know, we give these kids who are eighteen years old enormous loans at six point eight percent APR. I think is what mine is. I don't know what they are now. Mm. Uh, I don't know what that means. But now, as a grown man with a mortgage and uh, understanding of how these things work, I know that six point eight percent APR doesn't mean I'm going to pay six point eight percent back. No. It means I'm probably going to pay uh, 70% extra back. If you pay just the If I pay it loans. off in 20 years, which right. is about the average right. for uh, students to pay off their loans is 20 years. So that's crazy. 
That is, that is. And this is where my beef comes in, is that when college was sold to me and my peers, none of this part was discussed. Right. It was always the assumption that, well, it'll definitely pay off. You'll make so much more money because you went to college that you'll pay off those debts in no time. But to pay off a $50,000 debt in 10 years with the APR that I had, I would have had to pay $555 a month. Wow. <laughs> From the day I graduated college until now, and then I would just now be paying it off. Mm. $550, $555 is more than my car payment and my insurance and combined. Insurance. All right. <laughs> And you can love my phone on there, and I think, it's, I think it's still less, even with my phone right. on top of it. Um, you know, that's ludicrous money to expect. And uh, it's, again, to me, it's like this, it was almost predatory. Agreed. Um, Agreed. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that because, I, I mean, in my culture, there's not many talks about going to a white man's college. You know, like I've heard many of my brothers and sisters of color, you know, definitely vocalize their disdain for any white institutions um, being taught by white people, being led or groomed by white people. And I can understand their reservation. I can. But then there's a part of me where it's like, can't beat them, join them, right? My mom used to say that. Can't beat them, join them. And she said it at such an early age that it it became cliche at a time in my life where I probably should have really adhered to that um, ideology. But um, I think about that now. You know, can't beat them, join them. Well, when a black person did join them, they were considered a sellout. Right, like, oh, Uncle Tom, Sambo, whatever, you're a sellout, you're, you know, and I said this in one of my other previous podcasts, is I'm acting too white or I'm being too white for my black side or my black culture to accept me. Because I did want to educate myself. I did want to know how to set a table. I did know that, I did want to know how to hold my arms while I'm eating at a table and how to hold the fork properly and not like a shovel and you know, I, I wanted to know these things. I felt, I felt uppity, if you will, by knowing these things or having the advantage. And so I dressed a certain way. Yeah, I, I still have my cross colors and, you know, my fubus and my damaged jeans and, you know, all those things. But I also wear cardigan sweaters and turtlenecks and loafers and, you know, things of that nature, too, that my culture wasn't necessarily wearing. But I felt like I could do that as a mixed kid. So when you talk about this higher education, you talk about the loans. You said they were lot. You said it felt like it was pred- you, were, you were preyed upon. Um, well, unfortunately, I feel like uh, I wasn't personally preyed upon because I didn't need that loan coming in. For me, I took the loan my fourth year in college. I was 22 by then. Uh, I had a better understanding of what it is that I was taking, and I took a lot less because I only needed one semester worth. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> However, in in general speaking, mm-hmm. you feel like the system, the college system, or the educational system there is, is preying on the lack of education that people have because they're not financially For sure. educated. And I, I will admit uh, that I I'm a researcher. Anybody who listens to my songs uh, will know that I don't just pull all this stuff out of the out of my head. Yeah. There's you not know, a cloud. There's I not take, like an information cloud that you get. <laughs> I take time to to kind of educate myself on topics and dissect the information and, and kind of distill it into what I think it means anyways, mm-hmm. uh, because that's really all I can all I can say. But a couple things that I learned about in processing this and, and actually something that I, I didn't know before. So I've, I've discussed the loans a bit. Now, I, I did know that the loans are the only type of unforgivable loan that there is in the country. Any, any type of loan you can get, student loans are the only one that are forever. Bankruptcy will not save you. Death will not save you. Uh, but what I didn't know was they'll actually take your Social Security. There are people right now who have their Social Security being docked in order to pay for outstanding student loans. 
And now, while there's probably some people who went to school in like their 50s or 60s or something, and maybe that's part of it, I know for a fact that there are people who've been paying their loans for 20 years, have paid much more than they ever borrowed, and are still having their social security that they've paid into their entire lives. It's supposed to be the safety net, supposed to be the uh, financial grace for you to grow old with style and, uh, and enjoy the evening of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's being taken to pay for student loans that really have already been repaid. I mean, if, if the government is out here handing out loans for education because we are behind as Americans, uh, behind European countries and stuff behind, Mm-hmm. Uh, Jap- Japan and, and Korea and mm-hmm. I believe China now uh, as well. You know, part of the reason that they government subsidized these loans and proliferated the idea of higher education was for us to catch up. You know, but stress, trust, trust that profits are being made, <laughs> and not just by the institutions, but by the loan, uh, not just by the educational institutions, but by by the loans as well. Um, another thing I learned was that the cost of tuition has raised over the last 20 years by about 140%, Mm. but the cost of wages has only gone up by like 75 Mm. and that number may be higher. Now the last like quarter has been kind of a crazy jump. Mm. Uh, so those are like as of 2019 or 2020, um, numbers. But again, we have this increase in tuition, increase in wage, Mm. Right, so we have the increase in the cost of the investment, and the relative decrease of that potential payoff. You know, and again, these are not things that are being discussed. Nobody talks about higher education to young people in this way. Like, nobody says this might be a gamble. Right. Right. If you came up to a kid and you were like, "Hey, uh, you want to spin the wheel and see what happens?" Mm-hmm. That would be a more realistic and truthful way to present uh, higher education. <laughs> Well, true. I mean, not to mention we're in a era, we're in an era of time where a fourteen-year-old can make more money than a thirty-year-old. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, digital era, the digital era has proven that mm-hmm. um, these kids are unboxing things, and and their parents are forcing them to unbox things. And <laughs> I do always wonder about that. You know, my my daughter found Mariah Elizabeth a while back. <laughs> <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I watched a few videos, and I'm like, you find this entertaining, huh? Oof, I don't know. Yeah. We're going to very strictly limit how much of this you can watch, but I'm also not going to say you can't watch something, because then you'll just go find it some other way. Absolutely. That was <laughs> but, smart. But I do wonder, you know, I think Mariah Elizabeth is an adult, and I don't know if she always was or if she was a kid when she started, but I know there are some kids who are influencers that are, like, bringing home the bacon. They are. <laughs> right now. Literally. And I do wonder how much, you know, there's parental support or coercion, you know, if it's like the kid who forces their son to play football so mm-hmm. that they can become a pro sports star. <laughs> I mean, uh, Joe Jackson and the, and the Jacksons, you know, that was, mm. that was that situation. You know, he bred his family to be entertainers, you know, so we're just in a different era now with the digital, but to go back on, you know, the, the, the loans aspect, um, you know, the higher education, um, you know, I, I think I read something um, uh, upward of 60% of graduates don't land a job in their field of study. Um, I read I that, that I read that more females graduate from college than males now. Hmm. Um, Which, you know, good on the ladies. Hey, you know, equal, equal rights. Uh, I, But again, is education segregating people because of the debt that they're being placed in well and here's what i think um on that subject you know so this is something i thought about a bit when i was kind of trying to unpack all the layers of not just how i feel about higher education and education as a whole but right is it contributing to segregation of this of our society um and one thing that is really difficult to deny is that while tuition is expensive the average cost of attendance, I think, for Wisconsin uh, for undergraduate is 20000 per year for in-state. Tuition, I think, is only like seven. So the mm. other, the other 55 
of the debt that they're taking is just to live, just to be alive, you know, just to not live in their parents' basement, Mm -hmm. uh, which not everybody has that opportunity to do so. So if you do have the supportive family that allows you to live there while attending college, you don't have to take as much of a loan, right? If you do have the supportive family that will even better yet pay for you to go stay on campus and pay for your food and handle your business so that you can focus wholly on the education that you're getting, you have to take less debt, right? And I think that is where we really get into this gray area where it's like lower socioeconomic status is going to put you at a severe disadvantage to people who are of higher socioeconomic status. Mm. And this is America. We never uh, have frowned upon this sort of thing. <laughs> this is kind of how we live as far as, uh, as as that goes. But when it comes to education, it's like you have to ask the question, is this a uh, is this a right or not? Right? We've decided that K through 12 is free. We've decided this based on lots. Free-ish. You know, yes. Free-ish. Free-ish, free-ish for certain. Because it's $200 a year for me to put my son through public school. True. But there are also, uh, you know, if you qualify for food subsidies stamps and things like that, there are subsidies that are supposed to help out. Nothing's perfect, of mm-hmm. course. But generally, as a society, we've decided K-12, through you shouldn't have to pay for. Many other countries have decided higher education this is necessary for the health and prosperity of our nation. So we're going to invest this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, many societies, <laughs> many for sure. And, and I don't know where it ends. Do you, do you subsidize the uh, end the masters beginning? and doctorates as well, or only undergraduate? I don't know. Maybe you don't subsidize it, but again, we must acknowledge the fact that we have created this situation that basically diverts people to higher education, saddles them with large amounts of debt, regardless of what socioeconomic class they are. But the people who are of lower socioeconomic status as children, which they have no control over uh, for themselves, are far heavily more burdened. Mm. Right? And if you're in debt, you're much more likely to take whatever job you get when you graduate college than if you have a little float. Right? For me, again, for me, I had support I graduated school and the first thing I did was leave my home in Florida and go to Colorado, which was basically like the polar opposite of where I came from. Colorado was the youngest growing population. Florida's the oldest. Any final thoughts or sure. I mean, I think we unpacked a lot. Uh, I think I've talked at length about my feelings about this, but Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that I come back to a lot is just, uh, I, I think I mentioned earlier Acknowledging that most of us are doing the best we can with the toolkit that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, for my kids specifically, uh, and for the youth that I've had the opportunity to engage with, my goal is to just fill the toolbox. I don't, I don't need to shape the way that kids believe. I don't need to tell them how to think. Mm. The primary thing I want to do mm-hmm. is just stick tools in the box tools. They don't even know that they're going to need later. Honestly. Um, I love, I love the fact that you're utilizing your passion to, um, broadcast your purpose. Um, I think that is absolutely extraordinary. I love the fact that you're a white guy. So deeply involved in hip hop in my community. I love that. I do. You know, I think I reached out to you maybe four years ago, the first time, um, and now here we are, right? Everybody out there, I definitely recommend you taking a look into Cujo Hip Hop um, and really taking a look at this man's movement. And I'm sure that you will find that um, you'll you'll enjoy some of his lyrical content as well as I have. Um, Cujo, is there anything else that you want to give the people, man? Hey, it's been my pleasure. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this podcast, getting these nuanced views on things because... You know, in this in this day and age, we consume things in tiny little sound bites, and it is probably one of the largest causes of the, the dichotomies and the division that we feel right now is that we we consume things in such small amounts that there's no room for discussion, there's no room for understanding, there's only room for you know 
praise or outrage. Mm. Uh, and so I appreciate this opportunity to kind of discuss a little bit longer form. Thank you so much, man. I look forward to more projects that you're working on and potentially working with you on a few projects myself. Thank you. Absolutely. Life is not so black and white, and there is too much gray area not to talk about it. Thank you for listening. Look forward to having you back next time as we discuss truth, facts, and experience exposing the gray areas and stereotypes behind America herself. Oh, 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 oh,